Good indeed, isn't it, that we're able to come together tonight and sing songs like those we've just done? Songs such as Each Day I'll Do and those that preceded it have brought us to a position where we have chosen to give a thought for the next few moments to a section of the Word of God. I hope you'll be turning with me to the book of Isaiah. We'll be continuing our series of lessons on that book this evening. As we began that series a number of weeks ago, we highlighted at that point that the, though the book was lengthy in terms of number of chapters, we have attempted at least to somewhat sectionally consider it, and we'll do that again tonight. If you'd like to be turning to chapter 36, we'll take up our study tonight. In that chapter and the three that'll follow it, chapters 36 to 39 will be the focus of our efforts this evening. In this seventh installment of the book, I might make mention of two quick observations. First is this chapter, chapter 39, closes what may we describe as the opening large section of the book. Chapter number 40, which we'll take up next time, will in fact be a second, a secondary consideration in terms of a large section in the book. And we'll look forward to that. A little premonition of what's coming in it. It shall in fact reveal much about the nature of the Christ, His kingdom, and His forerunner, John the Baptist. We'll get to see all that in due course. But for tonight, the second comment I might make is chapters 36 to 39 are a rather interesting historical section in the book. I say that for the reasons we shall consider as we move through the time tonight. A major historical section, this opening slide, not only makes a quick observation of that fact, but in some ways prepares us for the reflections of what shall be in that historical section. It might do us well to remember the history of the Bible is not just arbitrary history. It, of course, was chosen by the Holy Spirit to preserve for some reason, some value connected with it, and I hope tonight we shall see not only one interesting truth coming out of this, but let me provide a spoiler. There's going to be a twist before we're done. So as you think about that, I'll let you know when we get to that right point tonight. First of all, chapter number 36. I've entitled this particular slide connected to that chapter, one that has to do with not just an enemy, but a frightening enemy. Allow me to set the stage for you, again, somewhat historically, and then we'll build around that as we move through the chapter in just a moment. The setting of chapter number 36 begins like this. We're going to be involved in the 14th year of the reign of King Hezekiah. He was, of course, the leader of the nation of Judah. And although we learn much about him from some of the other chapters of the Bible, it's somewhat interesting that in this chapter and those that follow, his characteristic and some of the features of him are presented to us in a very dramatic light. You may notice as the chapter begins, we are immediately confronted with the enemy. If you would, try to place yourself then in the position of ancient Judah. We've noticed many times on the Sunday morning lesson a particular map, and if you could picture to the north and east of where the nation of Judah was, there was a rather notable empire known as the Assyrian Empire. Brother Dennis called our attention to that in the reading from chapter 37, verse 33. But the thing to note about Assyria was this. They were in their heyday at the time we arrive at chapter 36 of Isaiah. Strong powerful, nobody had been able to even 
cause them any difficulty. It's not merely the fact that they had won against their enemies. They, at this point, no one had even posed them much of a challenge. Maybe it is in that regard. I've listed for you a few of the previous victories they had enjoyed. Look at that listing near the top of the slide. Already by this time, they had run rampant over Damascus. They had conquered it in 732 B.C., roughly ten years after that. They had again conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, which again was God's people, the ten northern tribes. They overran them in 722 B.C. Go roughly ten years later, they overwhelmed Ashdod, one of the Phoenician, one of the Philistine cities, again about 711 or 12 B.C. All of that points out this. If you could picture all of that, those areas were just north and west of where Israel was. They were knocking on the doorstep of Judah. They were surrounding it. They, in fact, were a tremendous enemy. It is in that regard, you might notice, I've listed one additional fact for your consideration. You'll notice they turned their attention to Judah. The text, in fact, will quickly point out to us in chapter 36. Look at the way verse number 1 ends. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defensed cities of Judah and took them. You see, the Assyrians had already conquered and taken some of the cities of Judah. It's just that Jerusalem hadn't fallen yet, the principal city, the capital city, and yet they were so close. At this point, you can notice then what follows. Jerusalem was next. The Assyrians had their sights set on the capture of and the overwhelming of Jerusalem, the city where David had ruled, the city that was the capital, the city where that great temple was that Solomon had constructed. At this point, though, you might notice, chapter number 36, beginning in verse number 4, introduces us to a person whose name is Rabshakeh. This person was a messenger. He was an individual who brought the message of the Assyrians. If I may summarize a host of the verses that follow, Rabshakeh, speaking on behalf of the king of Assyria, simply came before the people of Judah and said, Look, you don't have a chance. No other nation has been able to stand up to us. Their gods were not able to deliver them, and you needn't think your God will deliver you either. You stand no chance. You might as well submit to us, take the punishment that our king will choose to levy in your direction, and just recognize that that's the way it's going to be. You can either submit now, peacefully, or let us starve you out, and let us overwhelm you slowly, and we'll make it even worse for you. You can easily imagine the kind of difficulties that would have brought in the minds of of the people of Israel. There's an interesting little detail given in this chapter. You might notice particularly verse number 12. But Rapshakeh said, Hath my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall? Picture it this way, that large wall that surrounded Jerusalem. There were people who were sitting on that wall who were in fact close enough to hear what he was saying to not only those that were listening, but certainly to the leaders of Israel. Verse number 13 even heightens that thought like this. Rapshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice, 
in the Jews' language. He was able to speak Jewish. He was able to speak Hebrew. So notice, he was apparently skilled enough not merely to speak Assyrian, but to also speak Hebrew. And so he could talk in such a way that everybody on the other side of that wall could hear. At that point in the verses that follow, he again highlights the futility of resistance. You need to submit to us, for you have not a chance. I will invite you to come to the bottom of that slide and make an obvious application to you and me today. This enemy must have looked impossible to defeat. For most of those people on the other side of that wall, for most of those who were hearing these words, they must have thought, what are we going to do? Where are we going to turn? What can we possibly invoke in order to allow us some means of life and defense against an empire like this? Today, you and I face two gigantic enemies. The principal one is the devil. He too is mighty. He too is such that he has a lot of resources at his disposal. It is such that he is clever, he is subtle, he is wily. The New Testament describes many of those attributes of him. But wouldn't it be fair to say, 1 Peter 5.8 summarizes it like this, that we must be sober and vigilant, for our adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That enemy, you see, to you and me, if we're quite honest about it, he looks so ferocious and fierce, how may we defeat him? As you and I close that slide, may I say that that second enemy, the one I mentioned earlier, often is ourselves. We overestimate our ability. We think that we are able by wisdom or perhaps preparation to somehow wage an effective warfare against the devil. We need to realize the fact that's never going to happen. He's crafty enough to configure circumstances in such a way that perhaps in the near term, we may given and be given an illusion of success. But how fleeting. Circumstances will soon change and develop whereby that tactic will no longer be effective. It might be fair to say as we close that chapter, so far Israel looks to be in a despairing situation. Let's turn to chapter 37. In that chapter, the king Hezekiah has something to say. If you turn to chapter number 37, verse 1, you and I might ask, what are we to do? What did Hezekiah do? I've asked it, in fact, at the very top of that slide. Could I invite each of us to notice the person who occupies the place of leadership can have a remarkable impact on the mindset and the circumstances of those who follow that person. If your king and leader is weak... The people are going to be frenetic and chaotic and not know what to do in the face of challenge and difficulty. But if the leader is confident and has a foundation upon which decisions are based, a foundation in which he or she is confident and rests assured in the confidence connected to it, that kind of confidence will soon develop into the minds of those that follow. Let's turn to chapter 37. Verse number 1 reads like this, And it came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it. What did he hear? He heard the message that was shared from Rapshakeh. He heard then that Rapshakeh said, You have no chance. He heard Rapshakeh say, Look, the gods of no other nations were able to deliver them. Your God won't deliver you either. 
The verse goes on to say that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. The king, you see, chose at this time, in a circumstance like this, to proceed to respond in grief and in appreciation of approach to God, and he directly himself went to the place of prayer. Isn't it interesting? The king didn't assemble his military forces. He didn't assemble his cabinet and the spokesman that went with it. He didn't convene the military in perhaps a show or presentation. He himself sought the nature of the temple of the Lord. Now, verses 2 and following will bring us to note a few things that I've also invited you to consider on the slide. It begins like this. There were several servants then that came before the prophet Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah was in Jerusalem, and so they brought to Isaiah the message of what Rabshakeh had said. And so now you and I might wonder, how did the prophet react? We've seen how Hezekiah reacted. What about Isaiah? It is shortly after that on the slide. Could I point you to verses 6 and 7? It is an overwhelming passage. When they shared with Isaiah what Rabshakeh had said, this is what Isaiah responded. And Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall ye say unto your master, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words that thou hast heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and return to his own land. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Aren't you impressed with the ease and confidence and assurance that overwhelmed the spirit of Isaiah? When they brought then before Isaiah what Rapshika had said, he responded, Don't you be afraid. For in fact, the message he shared was, The Assyrian king will go back to his own land, and he's not going to bother us. That must have seemed virtually impossible to them. No one else had been able to overcome the approach of the Syrians, and no one else had been in, in any way effective. And to hear Isaiah speak with a kind of confidence like this, I might suggest in verses 8 and following in, through the remainder of this chapter, you and I might ask, did it come to pass as Isaiah had said that it would? Did that king of Assyria leave? Did he hear rumor just like Isaiah had said that he would? Without reading the rest of the chapter, could I point out verse, just a few verses beginning in verse 8? So Rapshika returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he was departed from Lachish. And he heard him say concerning Terhaka, king of Ethiopia, He has come forth to make war with thee. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, You'll notice a message had been brought. And so the king of Assyria had to turn his attention in war against Libna. And then he had to give attention to Ethiopia. But the fact is, his attention, at least in the near term, had to be turned away from Jerusalem. So far, the words of God seemingly had come to pass, but the greatest was yet to come. You may notice one final thing again that he had said in verse number 7. He would return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Now we'll have to ask, that part we have not yet seen fully. 
as you look down that slide with, slide with me, may I point out to you an interesting set of events that are furthermore revealed to us as the chapter proceeds. Let me select just a few of the verses. In verse 29, Because thy rage against me and thy tumult has come up into mine ears, therefore will I put my hook in thy nose and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back by the way by which thou camest. That's a prophetical section in which Isaiah spoke about what was to happen to the king of Assyria. God there said, I'm going to put a bridle and I'm going to put a hook in your nose and lead you back to where you came from. Another statement about the final removal of the Assyrians. But let's read on. Go a few verses further than that. Verse number 33. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. At this point, God has been very specific. He will not shoot even so much as an arrow in this city. God promised here to preserve Jerusalem. The king of Assyria would not enter it. At this point again, may I suggest how unlikely that must have seemed to some who were hearing it. To suppose that somehow the Assyrians would leave and would not, in fact, overrun it. But yet that's what God said. At the bottom of that slide, one last application to you and to me then would perhaps quickly be this. We've already noted the great enemies that we face, beginning with the devil. But notice how Hezekiah responded, but even more notably, how Isaiah did. Supreme confidence. May you and I never forget, the devil has already been defeated. If we will connect and tie on to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ... You might recall he has already said, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven, Luke 10, 18. He had already seen him overwhelmed and overcome, and when the Lord died at Calvary and did so sinlessly, able to rise in mastery over death, over Hades, and over hell, it provided an opportunity for all who would connect to him and be washed in his blood and live faithfully to him to know the victory that overcomes the world. 1 John 5, 4 still says that the victory that overcomes the world is our faith. Is it any wonder then that so often the New Testament writers would point us to the victory to be had in the Lord and the assurance and the supremacy that goes with that confidence? You and I need not languish in a world of doubt. We need not be overwhelmed with uncertainty as to whether or not the Lord is among us. You and I recall certain times in the Word of God, there were those who asked, is the Lord among us or not? If we do the Lord's will, didn't Isaiah know that the Lord was among him and his people? You and I can know the same. As we close that slide then, what about what's to follow? We've already highlighted some remarkable considerations, but now let's cast a spotlight on deliverance. May I direct your attention to chapter verse 36 of chapter 37. 
The first word of the verse is the word then, which is an adverb connecting this identically to the circumstances that just preceded. And if we weren't sure about that, there's a sister passage to this revealed for us in other places in the Word of God. 2 Kings 19.35, and we read there, it was the same night that these other things had been revealed. Let's see what happened that night. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. You and I will have noted that earlier a tremendous deliverance had been promised. God said the Syrian king will not so much as even cast a bank against this city. He will not shoot an arrow here. And that very night, the angel of the Lord went forth and killed 185,000 Assyrians. The enemy was taken away. The threat was over. As you'll notice near the top of that slide, inasmuch as the Assyrian threat was immediately removed from the perspective of the rest of Old Testament history, the threat was completely gone with regard to Assyria. Never again, may I repeat, never again would Assyria rise to a position of posing a threat to the people of God. The removal of the 185,000, the immediate death of them, caused the Assyrians obviously to rethink their attack upon Jerusalem. And in so doing, that saved the city. You and I notice quickly that that situation might be one of such intense interest. Is there any other record to this? I might offer archaeological records have at least brought the following before us. There are records of the Assyrian Empire, and an interesting set of observations is made about Sennacherib and his attack upon not only that area, including Jerusalem, but also of Egypt. And he himself admitted in those records that he immediately turned his attention away from Jerusalem and returned to his homeland. Now, confessedly, the time period is exactly this one. The, the archaeological records, he doesn't exactly say why. You and I know why. He no longer could have beaten Jerusalem. He no longer could have advanced to that point. He had to, in fact, recover his forces with the hopefulness later of attacking either Babylon or Egypt, one or the other. I think it's intensely interesting that that history accords perfectly not only in place and time to what the Word of God says, but it also shares with us the actual name of the man. The Bible was right. This person, Sennacherib, about whom we have read, perhaps brings us now to make this application to us. As you close the chapter, one final thing you might notice with me. God had also said that Sennacherib would be taken back to his homeland and with the sword he would be killed. Let's read how it happened. Verse 37 and 38. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt in Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his god, that Adramelech and Chadrezer his sons smote him with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Esarhaddon his son reigned in his stead. He died exactly the way God said he would. Now, God hadn't detailed who it would be, but it turned out to be his own boys. 
that took his life. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that a powerful development of this empire that had been so mighty and Sennacherib seemingly unbeatable? Not only did he lose so many of his troops in one night, his life was taken shortly thereafter. At this point in our lesson tonight, we've already come through the chapters 36 and 37. What awaits for us is chapters 38 and 9. And in those two chapters, we continue that historical development. And we do so in ways we've already discussed with an element of twist. In Revelation 12, verse 11, we notice a description there of how you and I are able to, to defeat the devil. That is to say, what is involved in this? We've already noticed that he is a powerful enemy. We've already noted that he's clever and wily. That particular verse reminds us that if we will put our confidence and trust in the Lord, if we will rely upon the Word and the blood, willing to die for His cause, then we too are a force the devil cannot defeat. That kind of statement still continues to reverberate in our thinking and remind us that our sojourn through this life must be bounded in fullness by the Word of God and connection to the Lord. Oddly enough, the twist shall come as a part of, these, of this pair of chapters. I've entitled it Personal Pride. May I ask what you suppose would have been the reaction of Hezekiah after all of this? The enemy now gone. The appreciation of that threat to him and his kingdom wiped out completely. How would Hezekiah likely have reacted? Some of the things we shall discover start like this. In chapter 38... In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord and said, Remember me, O Lord. I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. We learned that there was a particular illness that afflicted Hezekiah. In fact, it was serious enough, it was terminal. He became sick unto death. You notice that Hezekiah cried bitterly. The text says he wept sore. I suppose we can understand perhaps how a reaction like that could take place. You notice, though, he prayed unto God. He prayed that God would hear his prayers and grant unto him an addition to his life. Beginning in verse number 4, this was God's reply. Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, The God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer. I have seen thy tears. Let's pause there long enough to remind ourselves of this. God said He heard the prayer of Hezekiah. I've heard thy prayers. May we never begin to think that prayer is a meaningless activity, but it's just something we do collectively because it's just a habit. Just because supposedly that's what seems like it's a good thing to do. Prayer should be meaningful. Prayer should be rather profound and deep because we're praying to the Supreme One 
the Almighty God of heaven, and God said, I've heard your prayers, Hezekiah. Aren't we reminded in 1 Peter 3.12 that the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and His ears are opened into their prayers. We're reminded in 1 John 3.22, again connected to the idea of prayer, that God has promised that that which is asked in faith is something that not only will God hear, but an answer is also described. It's no wonder in all those connections we can at least be encouraged to reflect upon Hezekiah. But let's read further. Verse 5 closes by saying, I will add unto thy days 15 years. God extended His life by 15 years compared to what it would have been just due to the illness. 15 additional years. As we've noted in other lessons, Hezekiah didn't always make the best choices for how he used that 15 years. But should we not be impressed? Should we not be amazed at the fact that upon the hearing of that prayer, God granted it? It is with that in mind. Let's read even further. It says in verse number 8, I'm sorry, verse number 7, This shall be a sign unto thee from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that He hath spoken. Not only did God promise the addition of the 15 years, but He promised a sign. What was the sign? Next verse. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees which has gone down in the sundial of Ahaz, ten degrees backward. So the sun returned ten degrees by which degrees it was gone down. Not only did God lengthen by fifteen years the life of Hezekiah, at that time He lengthened the day as a sign to Hezekiah. The text says ten degrees in the sundial of Ahaz. That would translate to forty minutes. He extended the day by two-thirds of an hour. Interesting, isn't it? This is the second time in Scripture we've seen the lengthening of a day. In the days of Joshua, it was, of course, 24 hours in Joshua chapter 10. This time, 40 minutes. In thinking about the nature of that sign, isn't that a reminder of the greatness of our God, that of which He is capable but now all of that brings us to this. In the latter part of this chapter, as well as into the next, we begin to appreciate some of that which I've highlighted briefly for you on that slide. In fact, as you come to the latter parts of chapter number 38, we find Hezekiah expressing thanksgiving unto God, expressing to Him an element of gratitude. But for us... The next part of the lesson will come in chapter 39. That chapter is brief. Let me begin its reading like this. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. That sounds wonderful. Here's an enemy king who sent a message saying how apparently glad he was that Hezekiah was now improved and better. He goes on to say, Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment, and all the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house, nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. These servants of Babylon came 
they not only brought that letter congratulating Hezekiah for, for recovery, but as they came, Hezekiah showed them everything in his kingdom. He showed them his treasures. He showed them the source of the silver, the gold, the particular ointments that he had. He showed them all that was available. We might now ask this in verse 3. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto king Hezekiah and said unto him, What are what said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Then said he, so Isaiah now replies, What have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, All that is in mine house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house, and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. At this point, our countenance surely could begin to fall. As we think about how Hezekiah answered, Here these people from Babylon come. Other passages indicate to us that Hezekiah had become rather prideful. Perhaps in that recovery from sickness, in the victory over the Assyrians, it would seem that an element of pride and arrogance began to rule his heart. And so here's the sad twist. The very one who in chapter 37 had seemingly been so powerfully ready to come unto God and trust in Him, now began to trust too much in himself. And so as he showed these emissaries from Babylon all the treasures of his empire, he showed them everything. No doubt those people were impressed with the gold. No doubt they were thrilled with all the riches they saw. Isaiah said, Everything they've seen is going to end up in Babylon. Though he overcame Assyria by the power of God, it turns out that Israel was to be no match for Babylon. Babylon would conquer them. That was going to happen in not too many years in the future. That sad twist certainly places us in a position of recognizing the danger of personal pride, the danger of self-exaltation, at the bottom of that slide, I've asked you to notice a few matters that will point us rather clearly in that direction. The next slide will list them in more detail. But this pride that's mentioned here is something that is so often highlighted in the Word of God. I've chosen a few of the verses as those that are a rather powerful reminder to us. Beginning in Psalm 10, verse number 4, where the reminder is given at that place about the danger of that element in pride. Proverbs 16, 18 assures us that pride goes before a fall. That's just how it's going to be. That person who exalts him or herself, a fall is going to take place. Not only there. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, in the heart of the New Testament, aren't we there reminded of some, something rather similar to that and something rather directly stated in almost the same language. The characteristic of that pride is going, was going to be the doom of the Edomites. Obadiah verse 3, 
God there decried, the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. The Edomites thought they too were unbeatable, but God said, I will bring you down. Your pride will lead to your destruction. That happened. The New Testament has many more verses for you and I to consider. In Mark 7 verse 22, Jesus Himself said that among the things that are evil is that prideful heart, that heart motivated with the characteristic of that element in self-exaltation. Aren't we convinced that such is true? Maybe we've experienced it in the lives of others, perhaps even ourselves. The Bible often reminds us about that element in danger. Doesn't it seem as if in Luke 22, that was a part of what afflicted none other than Judas has carried himself? Judas, you see, for 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed the Master. And yet in that betrayal, it would appear from the language he used that he was just sure Jesus could relieve himself, deliver himself. And when that did not happen, the pride, you see, of this man named Judas would ultimately lead to him committing suicide. How tragic. How tragic. As you and I close that slide, aren't we reminded that just as Peter said it so well, when Jesus asked of them in John 6, verse 66, Will ye also go away? Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. When we in humility always remember that and trust supremely in His Word and that which He has revealed to us, we will be in position to, to not fall under the terribleness of what happened to Hezekiah. As you and I close this lesson tonight, we have not only seen a few of these things that began our considerations, but we've seen the thrilling historical section that has fallen before us in chapters 36 to 39. As I mentioned earlier, chapter 40, in many ways will be a slight movement in a different direction, but it too will be no less thrilling, no less beneficial, and no less encouraging to us of the way of God. Tonight, as always, we would wish to extend an invitation, an invitation about any who would find themselves separated from the God of heaven. Because let us rest assured, we too face a frightening enemy. But there is a cause for confidence in knowing that through Jesus Christ our Lord, we too shall have the victory. He indeed is a strong man who has overcome the devil himself, Mark chapter 3 tells us. The last two lessons have been these. The deliverance will only come by the blessing of God. But even when delivered, may we never allow pride to become our downfall. Aren't we thankful for lessons like those we find etched in the pages of the New Testament? To this very night, if anyone in this assembly, upon examination of your life, has found that you're not in the faith tonight, we're commanded, of course, to be in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. If you're not in that way, we would like to offer the invitation so that the Lord will, in fact, do that which you would wish Him to do. If you're a wayward child of God, come back to your first love. Acknowledge the sins in your life. Make confession of them. And we'd be honored to pray on your behalf. If you have never become a Christian, what better night could there be than this one? This day, the 13th of March, 2022, a day that will forever be different for you because all eternity is now positive 
All eternity is now in the direction that's noble and blissful and pleasant and right. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to assist you in obeying the gospel, believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. We'd like to offer that invitation and invite anyone that would wish to come to do so now while we stand and while we sing.